Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, It's been a bit of a crazy week here in the college admissions world, which feels like every week. Uh, But this week, the ACT announced they have a new policy that is going to allow students who sit for the full test to then retake only those sections that they want to improve on. Uh, There's a lot that we don't know yet about this new policy, including and probably especially and most importantly, whether or not colleges, um, many of whom don't super score the ACT, are going to accept scores in this way. Uh, I know that when the uh, SAT introduced the writing section of the SAT, there were many colleges that said, and then it was optional, many colleges said, well, we don't see it as optional, we want you to take it, we're going to require that. So it's, the ACT can do this, we're not sure how the colleges will respond. Um, it's also not going to become an option until the fall of senior year for the current junior class. So those of you who are seniors, this is not relevant to you. Uh, and we're going to keep everyone updated as this evolves. But just so you know, there was this new policy announced this week. Um, later in the show, we're going to talk about what to expect with early programs like early decision and early action as those results come in. Um, we're also going to be talking about how to look for and maximize merit scholarship opportunities. But before we get to all of that, we're going to talk about mindfulness and test prep. And when I think about test prep, there aren't usually a whole lot of new ideas when it comes to test prep. And this one is an interesting one. And I'm excited to welcome Logan Thompson, who's written a book called Beyond the Content, Mindfulness as a Test Prep Advantage, to the show to tell us about it. Hi, Logan. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, So in terms of this whole concept, maybe we should start with something very basic, and that is, what is mindfulness? And how do we, you know, what do we mean when we talk about mindfulness? It's a good question. And a lot of people are going to have different different takes on what it means. But one thing that's kind of a through line, no matter who you ask, is uh, the definition of mindlessness. So I'll give you an example. It's sometimes easier to describe mindfulness in the in the opposite sense. So most of us spend uh, most of our mental time thinking about things in the past or the future. That's fantasies about what's going to happen next or thinking about what had just happened previously. Now this can either be far in the future, like what am I going to do with the rest of my life, or far in the past, what happened as a kid. But most often it's the immediate future or immediate past. So in the test prep context, it would be, what's this next problem going to say? How am I going to do on this next uh, this next problem? Or what am I going to have for dinner? Or the immediate past, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. And anytime we do that, we are absent from what's right in front of us. And in high-performance scenarios, such as taking standardized tests, we have to have most of our attention on what's right in front of us. So what I would call mindfulness is paying attention to in the present moment to any sensations that are happening. And that could be visual or sound or emotional or thought, but it's noticing that we're 
usually not present, and then bringing our attention to the present moment, which is a prerequisite for a performance. Got it. And so with that in mind, which is really interesting because I don't think I've ever thought about mindfulness from the perspective of mindlessness. And also, as you describe it, I think that's pretty much how I spend most of my days, thinking about not what's right in front of me, but about all of those other things. Um, But what Mm -hmm. role do you see it playing in test prep specifically? Right. So one of the most common things that I saw with my students is that they would practice, their practice scores would be higher than their official test scores. And what that tells me is that it's not content that is the issue. It's something other than content. And that other thing is usually the thought and emotional patterns that are happening in the student's mind that is hindering their ability to download and access the, the content information. So I'll give you an example of how this plays out. During an actual test, let's just say it's a reading comprehension passage, a student will usually do one of two things. They'll read something in the passage that stimulates their memory about something else, and their mind will wander for at least a few seconds, and then they'll get to the end of the paragraph and realize they don't know where they went, and they don't remember what they read, so they'll have to reread it again. So there's a fairly innocuous consequence of being uh, mindless in life, but it it has dire consequences on a standardized test because it takes away time from focus. Now, the more insidious uh, type of mindlessness that happens in high-performance scenarios is when a student will, for example, miss a question or get nervous uh, about thinking about that they're being timed and then their, their thoughts start to snowball and spiral. And this can happen very quickly and not necessarily very enunciated thoughts, but the message is something like this. Oh, no, I don't know how to do this problem. I do, I'm really bad at exponents in general. Well, my brother's better at exponents than me. I'm not going to do well on this test. If I don't do well on this test, I'm not going to get into school. And it all happens very quickly without mm-hmm. the student recognizing it. And then they find themselves a couple minutes later spinning out in stories and distracted, and their body starts to get involved and go into fight or flight in a stressful situation, which doubles down the damage on the test because their body is sending resources to keep them alive because their mind is telling them they're in danger. Now, all of this can keep people from being able to show up and operate in their peak performance and being mindful, practicing mindfulness, helps people recognize those initial moments when their mind and body wanders and allows them to come back. Got it. So you don't end up in that spiral where then your body is getting involved and what is already stressful is becoming more stressful. If you can nip it in the bud, I would imagine that's going to be mm-hmm. incredibly helpful. Right. It's not, it's not, a, magic, it's, it's not a magic pill. If, if, you, if you practice mindfulness, then all of a sudden you're going to be a, a lot smarter. It's more like practicing mindfulness allows you to show up with your full capacity. So many people will perform worse than they, they can. They'll say, well, I know I can do better than this. This is basically trying to remove the debris and the roadblocks from performance. Got it. Well, what are, what are some tips you have for students to use mindfulness while they're prepping for the test? It seems like something you probably need to practice and not just show up the day of and of say, course. oh, today I'm going to be mindful, right? Yeah, of course. So it's going to take, it's certainly going to take practice outside of the main test. And I'd say outside of test prep as well. So there are some exercises in, in the book of just sitting down and noticing one's breath 
for five minutes at a time. This can also be called meditation. But what it's really doing is it's training the mind to notice the present moment. And if the if the mind is anchored on something like the breath, it's training it to uh, stay focused. And it's a lot more obvious when the mind wanders. And that's really the key. Every time your mind notice or you notice that your mind is wandering, that is bringing it back to the present moment. So this type of practice over and over again translates into test prep, like studying, and students can notice when their mind wanders. That's the prerequisite to being able to um, direct the mind, is noticing when it's not present in the first place. If you don't realize it's wandering until 20 minutes later, it doesn't do you much good. Now, this, this is where it gets into the next part of my book of what do you do about the types of thoughts that generally occur. And we can talk about that if you'd like, but that's the passenger metaphor in the book. Yeah, no, I think that would be great to share with our listeners. Um, all of this information is is really interesting to me. And as I sit here with a child who is a sophomore in high school, I'm thinking he might really benefit from this and, and uh, I might want to do some of these exercises with him. So, yeah, please tell us a little bit more. So one of the things that um, people find is they'll notice, they'll notice their mind wandering, but that doesn't necessarily alleviate the concern because where the mind often wonders, wanders is to unpleasant places that have unpleasant messages. The students often have messages such as, uh, I'm not good enough or someone else is better than me or I'm not going to be able to do this, I'm bad at math, whatever the story is. We all have different themes of our thoughts and emotions. So there's a template and framework laid out in the book of how to work with those various themes. So the first step is recognizing the themes and their instructions on how to do that. But when people's minds wander in stressful scenarios, it's usually to four or five common messages. And once one of those messages is identified, for example, um, I call it leap, I call leapfrog one of the messages. And I call those in the driver passenger metaphor, uh, when one of these hindering Uh, unpleasant messages takes over. I call that kind of the passenger taking the wheel from us, the driver. Mm -hmm. And we can name those passengers, and one of these passengers in the book is called Leapfrog. You can recognize them by the message they give, and Leapfrog's message is, well, it's kind of like jumping to conclusions. If I don't do well on this problem, I won't do well on the practice test. Then I won't do well on the real test. Then I'll never get into school. Then I'll never be happy. And when you start to recognize this passenger that jumps to conclusions, Sometimes recognizing it is enough for it to dissipate, but sometimes you actually have to engage with this message and logically and compassionately kind of enter into a dialogue with part of yourself. And what that briefly looks like is inquiring what this message is really about because it feels unpleasant and it sounds discouraging, but all of, the, all of our passengers, which are, of course, just parts of ourselves, have helpful intentions underneath them. And if you ask and search long enough, which just usually takes a few minutes, you'll find there's a helpful intention or message under it. For example, LeapFrog usually just doesn't want us to fail. And its way of trying to get us not to fail is to paint a worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. So what, how this translates into practice is someone can recognize that LeapFrog, for example, is present, and then not enter into an adversarial relationship with it. One of the worst detours someone can have is noticing a part of their own mind or emotions and then try to fight with that because then you're just fighting with yourself. 
Mm-hmm. So an alternate method is to notice that it's present, recognize its good intentions, and then kind of uh, gently talk it down with logic, saying, I know what you're trying to do. Thanks for the message. And you can kind of use this talking to yourself metaphor um, to help allay the, the passengers that show up for all of us. Got it. And bring the focus back to what is in front of you, which is... Mm-hmm. The test. And so that brings me to another question, which is, are there any specific things that you encourage students to do on the day of the test? All of these things are obviously things that will come up that you've already mentioned will come up when you're taking the test. I'm just curious if there are any specific things you might do on the day of the test um, to get yourself Mm -hmm. in the right mindset. Yeah. So one of the, we could look at this in two ways. One would be the physical or habitual ways, uh, things to do. And the second would be the emotional mindset. Um, physically, I would say habit and routine is good. Don't do anything very different on test day. Get up around the same time, eat around the same, eat around the same thing, uh, eat around the same time and do a little exercise. Just get sleep the night before basic things to do for, uh, performance. Mentally, I think there are two things that are important that I see students make a mistake and not doing. And one of the things is to expect your passengers to show up. Having expectations that everything's going to be clean and clear and you're going to be calm and focused is just not realistic. Now, you can have affirmations and hopes, but passengers are going to show up. They're with us all the time, and that's fine. So when they show up, it's not some big scary thing. It's for example, I was taking the I was taking the official GMAT two months ago, mm-hmm. and I got um, I got when part, part of the question was twenty two minus six. Now that's probably the easiest part of any question on the GMAT that I took, but my mind froze. I didn't know how to do twenty two minus six. I wrote it on the <laughs> paper, and it just looked blank. And I'm a GMAT teacher, so. Right. My passengers just started yelling at me, like, you're an embarrassment. You don't know how to do this. You're you're going to embarrass yourself in front of your students. How can you not? I mean, they just went on and on and on. And luckily, with some training, it's not like I didn't have, I wasn't hard on myself. I definitely heard those messages. But I was able to say, oh, there, there are some passengers giving me a hard time. No worries. I'll just keep going. Mm-hmm. So during the test, they're going to show up, even if you're, very adept at working with passengers. Um, so that's one thing. Know that they're going to show up, and that's totally fine. The other thing is treat the actual test. Don't change your strategies from how you did on a practice test. Some people uh, dramatically change their strategies, like uh, spending extra time on a problem or changing their habits in some way. But just treat it the same way you did on a practice test that you're proud of. Got it. And that, that makes sense. I think that's really good advice. And you mentioned not really changing your routine. And for some students, I think they're not used to getting up that early and then going to a test center mm-hmm. and spending hours. So one thing for, for those students who may be particular, particularly struggle in this area is maybe they want to change their routine in the weeks leading up to the test so that it feels a little more normal. Um, to them. So oh, of it is course, it, definitely. Right? So especially if it's sleep schedule. What did you say? Sorry? Especially especially if it's sleep schedule. Yes. I'd say that's more important than practicing where you take it or, or 
what time you eat, but if your body's used to being asleep at 8.30 and now you're taking a test at 8.30, that's not (laughs) going to be good. Right. Nothing good is going to come of that. Absolutely. Logan, thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to let our readers know, uh, our listeners know, again, the the name of the book is Beyond the Content, Mindfulness as a Test Prep Advantage. Where can people find the book if they'd like to purchase it? It's on Amazon and in Barnes & Noble. Um, You can also find it on my website at loganjthompson.com, but really just Amazon Beyond the Content. Awesome. Uh, it should probably show up. All right. Well, I hope people will check it out, and I thank you again for coming on today. And we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about maximizing merit scholarship opportunities. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Beauty is always a reflection of how we are taking care of ourselves from the inside, and our business is no different. Building your business brand is a direct reflection of you. In today's competitive landscape, personal and proven leadership skills can ensure that our brands and businesses succeed. Join host Bonnie Bonadeo and visionary guest experts to help you find success. Tune into beautiful brands inside and out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. I just wanted to also put a plug in for Instagram. We are on Instagram now. You can follow me at at ElizabethHeaton92, and you could follow College Coach at at CollegeCoachBH. So check us out. Uh, all right, we are talking about how to look for and maximize merit scholarship opportunities. And my colleague, Tara Piantanita Kelly, who is a former financial aid consultant and also a former financial aid officer 
at Menlo College and Rochester Institute of Technology, among some others, uh, is here to talk to us about those today. Hi, Tara. Hi, Beth. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you here about a topic that I think is very, very interesting to many people, and I think especially to our listeners, and that is merit money. So why don't we start with uh, the very first idea, which is, what is merit money? Uh, well, it's, it's pretty much, it's free money. It doesn't have to be repaid, which is great. Um, and it's based, it's given for something other than a student's, like, financial need. So it, it, financial need doesn't come into play. So it's, it's just, it's free money based on something other than financial need. Right. See, I said most people love this because what's not to love about free money? You don't have to give it back yeah. and you get to put it towards college and college is expensive. Uh, all right. Yeah. Well, then that begs the next question, which is, where does it come from? We all know that free money is not really free, right? The money's coming from somewhere. So where does it typically come from? Excellent. So the, the biggest source of merit aid comes from the colleges themselves. Uh, so colleges will give merit aid for any number of reasons. Um, but then there are also other organizations, uh, like you know, businesses or professional organizations or social or civic organizations. Um, lots of organizations and businesses um, can, you know, have a, create a scholarship and, and give that away. So, like, for instance, I'm in an adult marching band, and we have a scholarship that we give away to local students. So it comes from a lot of different places. Yeah, I do. I I think often what is interesting to me about this, uh, the first point that you made about colleges being the biggest source, is that when families think about looking for scholarships, they are often thinking about the ones that you're mentioning, which are those offered by businesses or professional organizations or the Rotary Club, all those different things, right? But really, where they should be looking most closely is at the colleges, and um, because that's where the big biggest windfalls tend to come from and um, often or sometimes with the least amount of effort. So I guess the let's talk about why colleges offer merit aid or why colleges might offer a particular student merit aid. Oh, great question. So um, colleges use their uh, merit aid as uh, an enticement to enroll. So um, if let's say they're, they're looking at a student and uh, that student has something that the college wants, then they might try and entice that student to enroll uh, by offering them, you know, essentially it's a discount. You know, hey, if you come here um, and enroll here, then, you know, we'll, we'll charge you less or we'll give you this, this scholarship. Um, whereas, you know, if, if a, a school down the road offers them no enticement to enroll, no scholarship, you know, the student is less likely to go there. So, you know, colleges can do that if a student... Um, has maybe great academics and they're looking mm-hmm. for, you know, a, a boost in their academics or maybe the, the student has a particular talent or artistic ability or athletic ability or something along the line. Something, the student has something that that college wants and the college is willing to, uh, you know, offer them a scholarship to get them to enroll. What, what I love about this point is that it really is a discount, right? But and I don't know, but when I go to the store and if they're offering something on a 30% discount, I'm on board. That's awesome. But yet something about a college saying it's a discount feels less exciting than, oh, hey, we're going to offer you a scholarship because you are a great student or a really talented athlete or you have this special ability that we really prize. So I think it's kind of funny how 
the brain works that if they just said they were going to offer you a discount, maybe that would be a little less exciting. But this reward for you doing something at a high level feels somehow even more exciting. So, um, but really oh, yeah. at its core, it's Absolutely. a discount. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the the student wants to go back and you know tell their friends, "Oh, I got a scholarship, not not I got a discount." <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. That's very. That's the worst language ever. See, it's a great example of how words count and words matter. And in this case, I think it is nice to say you got a scholarship versus that you just got a discount. Um, one thing that I think is um, is important to note is how many colleges out there offer merit aid? So is this something you're going to find at every single school or not really? Um, You can find them at most schools, but there are a handful of schools that uh, don't give any merit aid at all. So like, for instance, the Ivy Leagues. If you think about um, the Ivy Leagues, I mean, they have students that are just, you know, they have so many more students that want to attend there than than can attend there, right? So the, the admit mm-hmm. rates are very low. But, I mean, they really don't have to offer any kind of inducement to enroll, right? They're already turning away 90% of the kids. So um, although the Ivies do give a lot of free money, it's all based on demonstrated financial need and not on merit. So um, the Ivies don't give merit scholarships. And, uh, you know, there's a handful of other, you know, very highly selective colleges that, that don't give merit scholarships either. But by and large, most of the other uh, colleges and universities in the U.S. do have some kind of scholarship, you know, merit scholarship program. Right. I think I think the only thing I would add there is that the more selective the school, so if you're looking at a highly selective school that does offer merit aid, the likelihood of a student getting that aid is much smaller because like you were just noting about the Ivy League, you know, they have so many, the, the more highly selective the school is, the more qualified students they have applying and the less they need to use merit aid to entice students to come there. So they might reserve it for the very, very top students, but it's not going to be available to the average applicant at that school. Um, but Exactly. You know, and I guess the the next question is, well, maybe you're looking at a number of schools. How do you know if a school is offering merit aid? Ah, there is no one main database for that information. So families just have to go onto each college's website and in the search bar, you know, type in merit scholarship and kind of find find their way through the the website to see what that particular college offers. You know, some some are colleges are great about saying, you know, if you come in with this SAT score and this GPA, you get this scholarship. And it tells mm-hmm. you the amount and the name of it, and it's great. But not all schools do that. So, um, But when you go onto a college's website to look for merit scholarships, take a look you know, to see, number one, do they offer them? Number two, if they do, you know, do they have benchmarks that, that students can meet to, to get higher scholarships? Um, number three, see if there are any additional applications that are required for a student to be, um, you know, eligible for one of their merit scholarships? And number four, are there any uh, deadlines that the family has to meet in order to, to qualify for merit aid? What's your experience in terms of the number of schools that offer merit aid but require a special application for it, um, you know, additional essays, things like that? Is that common or less common from your experience? 
You know, I would say it's kind of about 50-50, really, because um, I, I, I do a lot of research on different schools, and uh, it, it's very common for me to, when I'm looking at for merit aid at the school, for the school to say, you know, in order to be considered for our merit aid, you know, the, all the student has to do is submit their admissions application by such and such a date, and they'll automatically be considered for everything. And that's mm-hmm. great. Um, but not all schools do that. The, the other half of the schools say, you know, you need to meet this deadline, but for this particular scholarship, you need to submit an additional essay or um, you need to log into our scholarship portal where we'll ask you a whole bunch of questions to see if we can match you up to scholarships. So it, it just it, it really varies by the school. Right. And, and um, one thing that you do sometimes see or I have sometimes seen is you don't have to do anything special, but they do have a special deadline for the students who want to be considered for merit aid and they need to apply by that deadline. So they don't have to do anything special, but they have to get their application in sooner, which is an interesting yeah. wrinkle, right, um, to it. It is. Um, it is. What kind of money are we talking about here? Are we talking about a little bit or a lot? Uh, for the, the merit money that the colleges can give, it could be anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to, I've seen, you know, essentially full rides, full, you know, tuition and fees and room and board is covered. So, um, for one, one school, I, I even saw that, I saw that they got the complete full ride, meaning the school's cost of attendance, tuition and fees, room and board, plus books and supplies and transportation to and from school and everything. You know, that, that's a complete free ride. So, you know, there are schools that do that. It's rare, but there are some out mm-hmm. there. Um, but it's not uncommon to have a, a school that says, you know, we, you know, our highest scholarship um, will cover full tuition. So, you know, from from just a few hundred dollars all the way up to a full ride. It just varies by school. And in terms of how they decide to hand out, if a school has differing level levels, how do they decide who gets what? Right. So if if they have a, um, they might have a matrix that says, okay, you know, if you come in and you have you know, this standardized test score, um, then you get this scholarship. Or, and they could even have it broken down by, you know, by majors and programs. Well, if you come in and you have, you know, you're in our engineering department and you have this score, then, you know, you might get this scholarship, whereas if you're in, let's say, like, I have, I have a degree in music. You're in the music department. You have the same score. You're not going to get a scholarship. So it's just, you know, the, the schools have their own kind of varying policies as to how they dole out that money. Got it. And so the schools have their policies. And like you said, some of them are really upfront about it and might say something very specific, like if you have X, we give you Y. Um, But certainly plenty of schools are not that transparent. Um, How can families go about figuring out which colleges are going to find their students desirable, which schools are going to be the most likely to give the student merit aid, uh, and and kind of think about the college search and planning and application process through that lens. Ah, yes. I, so the, the probably the best tool uh, for a family to know which colleges uh, you know, are going to see their student as desirable is the, the college list itself. You know, it's just a balance college list. So, you know, imagine that we have this hypothetical student, you know, Susie student, and, you know, like all students, there are schools that are going to be, you know, a challenge or a reach for Susie to get in, and there are going to be some schools that are just right for her, and she has a good chance of getting in. And then there are going to be schools that we call no-problem schools, where, you know, Susie is definitely getting into that school. So now, (laughs) think of it from the college's viewpoint, though. So if the college is using its merit aid to attract the best students it can, 
then they're going to offer that merit aid to the students toward the top of their applicant pool, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, where would Susie be in each of these schools' applicant pools? And, you know, at the challenge school, she's going to be toward the bottom. She might not even get into that school. You know, at the just right school, she's probably going to be in, in kind of in the middle of the pack. But at the no problem school, she's going to be toward the top. And so it's the no problem schools on Susie's list that are going to be the most likely to offer her a merit scholarship. So, yeah, I mean, and and that's what we typically tell people is fall in love with your safeties because those are the places where they're going to be giving you the most aid and it's going to be the most attractive to go to. And you really do have to fight against the idea that because a school wants you, somehow they are less than a school that doesn't want you. I've been talking about this piece a lot lately. It does feel like human nature. And one of the best things I think we could all do for ourselves is to to get out of that mindset and into the mindset of, wouldn't it be great to go to a place where they're really going to embrace me being on campus uh, and having me there? What um absolutely. You know, yeah, and and I do think that for families who have finances top of mind and making college an affordable option without going into significant amount of debt and you know, if you are lucky enough that you are a student who could qualify for some nice merit aid, then it just seems like why wouldn't you make that choice? It seems like a good choice to me. Um, I, I could not agree with you more. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and for both of us with kids who are heading to college potentially, eventually, you know, this mm-hmm. is something that you, I'm thinking about a lot, for sure, yeah. a lot about. Well, I'll um, give you kind of a, a, for instance, you know, my, my daughter, when she was looking for uh, colleges, um, she wanted a small private liberal arts college out in the country, very quaint. And I said, well, those come with a big, pay, you know, those are, those are a big price tag. So you're going to mm-hmm. have to get, you know, a, a good academic scholarship to, to go there. And so, and she did, and she got the, the scholarship. And um, so it, it, she was very excited because this college says, not only do we want you, we, we're willing to show you how much we want you by giving you this scholarship. And we're going to, you know, automatically put you into our honors program and you get you know, this and that and the other. She was like kind of blown away. Wow, this school really wants me and made her feel really good. Right. See, now that's great. She was able to embrace the idea of being wanted versus the idea that the, some school that was maybe a little less inclined to offer her money but felt I don't know, somehow felt more impressive. So good for her and good for you for helping her to see things that way. So I think that's awesome. What else, other than the colleges themselves, where else can families look for merit scholarships, though? So we know that that's going to be the biggest source, but maybe the colleges that are most likely to offer merit scholarships for whatever reasons aren't ones that are really super appealing, or maybe you're in love with the idea of some colleges that don't offer merit scholarships. So what other sources um, do you recommend families check out when they're looking for merit scholarships? Uh, gotcha. Well, I always say start locally. So check with the, you know, your student high school guidance counselor. Ask them, hey, you know, for any of the students that graduated last year, do you know of any local scholarships that they got? Um, check with your local chamber of commerce. You know, they have a listing of all of the businesses and organizations, you know, locally. Contact them. Hey, do you give any scholarships to local students? Um, you can also check with uh, parents and should check with their employers. There are employers that will offer scholarships to the, the children of their employees, so take a look at that as well. And then there's um, quite a few free and reputable um, online scholarship search websites, um, free, I say, and reputable. So mm-hmm. if they want to charge you money, 
you don't really need to do that. You can find the free ones. And, uh, you know, there's different ways that you can, you know, do searches on those websites as well. So, you know, there's lots of ways to look. You can look locally. You can look nationally. What any website in particular that you'd like our listeners to check out? Um, well, we're not affiliated with any of them, but my personal favorite is just scholarships.com. Pretty easy. <laughs> That's a good one. Time, it's free. It's reputable. Yep. And uh, they can use that uh, a couple of different ways. They can, the student can create an account where you know, they'll be asked a lot of questions, and then they'll start to receive emails saying, you know, hey, it looks like you meet the criteria for this scholarship, and then it's up to the student to either apply or not. Um, but if they don't want to do that, the uh, scholarships.com also has, at the top of their website, just a link to their scholarship directory. The student can open that and just kind of start browsing through and see, see if any of the scholarships in their directory um, work for them. All right. I like scholarships.com. All right. So scholarships.com it is. Thank you so much, Tara. I really appreciate you joining us today. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. We're going to be right back with what to expect from early round results. So don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back and we are talking about the early round. And when I say early round, I mean things like early decision, early action, rolling, priority. So all of those programs where you submit your application earlier than the regular decision deadline and then uh, get an answer before those who are applying regular decision get their answers. And joining me today is my colleague, Karen Spencer, who also happens to be a former admissions officer at Georgetown and Franklin and Marshall. Hi, Karen. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And between the two of us, we have experience with early action and early decision at our former institutions, but also, of course, we've worked with students who've applied to every form of early that I can think about. Um, so hoping that we can give people some thoughts on what to expect. Um, really quickly for our listeners, on August 8th, we did a podcast segment on um, what the early options are, how to decide if they're right for you. So we're not going to talk about that today, but if you're interested, you can go back and you can find the segment that ran on August 8th and listen to that. But um, Karen, maybe you can recap, what are the general deadlines that we are talking about here when we mean, uh, when we talk about early programs? So there's a few different ones, as you've mentioned, um, and I would say I've seen a little bit of a shift a tad in the last maybe two years on these deadlines moving ever so slightly. I'd say November 1st is still, and feel free to say you disagree nope. here, but I'd say November I 1st is still by far the most common date for early action or early decision. I would bet 90% um, or maybe even more of colleges, this is their deadline for um for early action or early decision. That's pretty much been the standard practice for many um, years. There are, I'd say in the last two years, a few more schools bumping up um, the early deadline to October 15th. Um, UVA comes to mind. Um, UNC comes to mind. There's a few other schools. Um, I suspect that it's simply because of the volume of applications mm-hmm. coming in. They just need that much more time to read those applications and get them back out the door. Although I cannot prove that, that's uh, my own conjecture there. But um, so there are a few more deadlines moving up earlier to October fifteenth. Um, but I would still say November first is by far the most common for early action and early decision. Um, priority, same thing. Um, that is sometimes they say anywhere from like the minute the application goes up, but the priority deadline is usually anywhere between November 1st and sometimes December 1st, again, depending on the school. Um, early decision round two is um, also, I would say, in the last two years, an option that I would say, and again, feel free to disagree, I feel like was um, only offered at a handful of places or not nearly as many mm-hmm. places. I feel like there has been a real uptick in how many places offer ED round two. And that deadline is usually like a January timeframe. Um, and so right. a lot of times used for people who did not get in early decision or early action, maybe at their first choice school, 
um, and this was their second choice that they're really committed to, or maybe they just weren't ready to commit at in November for either, you know, they didn't, they weren't, didn't have a favorite, favorite school that they were, you know, yet they had, they visited something in December and fell in love with it. Maybe their testing wasn't done yet. Uh, maybe they wanted that final round of grades and 12 to go out the door because they'd had a blip somewhere in their transcripts. Um, so there's a much a larger resort, uh, kind of um, emergence of these ED round two. And again, those are usually sometime in January. By right. And, yeah, and I would agree. Regular, I agree with all that. In January. Yes. Okay. Um, usually what I find with ED two is it's the same deadline as regular decision. Um, but that they are then going to give you an earlier decision. And of course you're committing because it's early decision. When, when should families, students expect the results to start coming in from these early programs? Because even though you are applying early, um, that doesn't mean that the results always come quite as early as you would like them to come. So what's your take on the different programs and when we might expect results? Sure. So early decision, again, I'd say by and large, usually says they will alert you by mid to late December. I'd say, again, that's fairly standard practice um, for early decision, especially because you're committing to them. Um, and so they, they promise usually get you that answer by then. Early action, often same thing, early to late, I'm sorry, mid to late December, although early action can go all the way into January, sometimes even February. Um, and that can be later, again, because you're not committed. Um, I think they don't feel they're in, that urgency to let you know because, um, you know, if the early decision, if you get in, right, there's really no mm -hmm. point in applying sending all your applications elsewhere, right, and you save all that money. So I think most institutions probably feel they owe it to you if, it, if you're willing to commit to let you know before all your other applications are due, <clears throat> whereas mm -hmm. early action, because you don't have to go, I think there's no sense of, well, we have to tell you so that you can make that decision, right? You already have until May 1st to make that decision whether you want to attend or not. So sometimes you'll see those early action notifications kind of getting delayed into like January or February, although I'd still say by and large, mid to late December for EA and ED round one is pretty standard practice. Um, yep. For ED round two, that can be February. That can even be March. Um, again, it really depends on the school, but I'd say February is also, I'd say, more common than not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so, because too, I think if they drag it out too far into March, then students are going to be getting answers from other schools, and that might complicate that. What if they hear from another school, and they get in, and it starts to make them think, well, maybe I don't want to commit to that ED2 school, and it causes more problems than it solves, so my guess is that they probably try really hard to get those out by February at the latest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then rolling, which is a little bit trickier, I think. What are your thoughts on rolling? You know, it's funny. I've been doing this a very long time, as have you. I know. We've worked <laughs> together for a very long time. And I feel like rolling has the most erratic practices. So yep. there are some schools, I just feel like there are some schools that, like, I used to kind of describe rolling admissions like a revolving door, right? So applications are constantly going in the door, decisions are being made, and then those decisions are going right back out the door. Uh, and I think when I first started this job, that was, pretty standard, but even places like a Penn State have changed that policy, right? Now they have different deadlines than straight up rolling. They still have it, but 
sort of. Um, I think it gets a little bit more complicated. That's where I generally direct people to the website. I mean, I think rolling is still beneficial. Get your application in early, right? That's a given mm-hmm. because on rolling, the definition of that, right, is that they're being read on a constant basis, right, which means every day there are less spots available than there were the day before. <clears throat> so that kind of guidance on rolling of getting it in early is still, I think, universally a good policy. However, when you're going to hear Right, like it's some schools seem to do this like in batches. I think it was Clemson a few years ago that said like we're kind of doing this in like group bunch order, right? Like kind of based on how mm-hmm. it came in. Um, and others kind of it's like a trickle effect. Like every day, you know, more letters just get sent out the door. Um, some still say kind of one deadline. You'll hear by then, but are kind of a little vague about when yep. between when you sent that in and that date, you might actually hear back. So I wish I could say something uh, universal in my experience about rolling, but that one in terms of notification, it can be kind of all over the map and sometimes very dependent upon the school. Right. Yeah, I think that I totally agree with you. And there is really, you can't even say, I think we used to be able to say sort of two to six weeks. I'm not even comfortable saying that anymore. The answer really is you oh, no. might hear yeah. back, the you know, two days later and it might be two months. So that's one where you really need to be with the individual schools. But I'm, I'm with you on the, the, what hasn't changed in terms of my advice is you want to get it in early. And that's, you know, that's your focus there. So what are your thoughts about you get in, let's say you're applying to 10 schools, five of them you're applying through early round programs. Uh, What do you do while you wait on those application responses? What do you recommend anyway? You work on all your other applications. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you do. A lot of people really want to sit there and fingers crossed and pray and think, oh, gosh, please, please, please. You know, I just want to get into here so I don't have to fill out these other five applications. And while I would argue you don't need to send out the other five applications, send your, you know, save your money and, and only send them if you have to, um, I do always say that um, you need to be working on them. Because, again, let's say three or four of these five schools that you're waiting to hear from don't let you know until December 24th. That gives right. you a whopping seven days to get everything else ready, which, you know, if there's, if there's no other, you know, materials due, that's one thing. But, you know, if you're applying to a school that has, you know, those other five schools have six other essays that need to be written before they're complete, seven days, including a massive holiday in the middle, does not give you a lot of time to get those done and or done well. Um, so really, you have to kind of go into all of these things presuming you're not going to get into any of them because the rest really need to be ready to go out the door um, so quickly after you may hear from these schools that you don't really have time to wait and find out first. Not to mention the fact that who's going to be excited about working on those other five remaining applications if you've just heard no from all these other schools that you were really excited about? That is not going to feel good. You're not going to be in the right mindset for that. So I am 100% with you on that. And I always tell my students, and I actually used to be a scare tactic, and now I actually really believe it's true. And it's that those who take the time and apply to get all those other applications ready seem to fare better in the early rounds than those who say, well, I've got my five done and now I'm just going to sit and wait and I'm not going to work on the others. I don't know. That never seems to go well. So I don't know if it's you're sending bad juju (laughs) out into the world or what, but it doesn't seem to go well. So don't wait. Um, You did mention, though, your advice would be you just don't submit them yet, but just get them done and ready to go. Yes, 
I, okay. I mean, I think I mean, if you want to, I mean, listen, if you've got money to burn, knock yourself out. I'm not here to tell you how to spend it. However, the average applications, you know, cost a lot of times between like 50 and $80. So if that's five applications at 60, you know, bucks, that's $300 you just saved not having to send them out if you get into a school that you know you'd want to go to before those other five schools. So, right. you know, I, I say hold on to your money, um, or in this case, your parents' money, and, um, and wait and see how that pans out, and then decide what you may still want to send out the door before January 1st. Yep, yep. I think that's really good advice. Uh, you don't typically get, you don't get bonus points for submitting your application well in advance of the deadline. And at most places, unless it's rolling, they are not going to even touch your application until after the deadline. So there's a benefit to maybe getting it in a couple of days early, a couple a week early, maybe just so you know that you're not going to have technical issues. But beyond that, um, save your money. I totally agree. All right. Really, um, in the last few minutes that we have, uh, I did want to let listeners know that we're going to be talking about how to handle a deferral on our November 14th show. But um, I guess my, what I would like to ask you, Karen, is kind of what are the possible results that will come to you as, from these early programs? So what, what do you see students hearing back from colleges? Is it always a yes or a no? Not always. So uh, an early a deferral could do one of, again, I'm sorry to say it depends on the school, but, um, you know, I'd say still majority of schools that have an early um, program can either give you an admit, a deferral, or a deny. Um, and an admit is obviously what you think it is. Um, a deferral means we're going to roll you into the regular decision pool. It means we're not ready to make a decision on your application for whatever reason. Um, maybe you were looked great but not great enough for that pool. Maybe we thought, you know what, where's been a little dip in grades in 11th? We'd like to see what 12th looks like to see if we're on a trend here. For whatever reason, they'd like to reread you again in the context of the regular decision pool. That's a deferral, okay? <clears throat> a deny is a deny. And don't confuse a deferral with a denial or a denial with a deferral. Those are not the same thing, right? A deny is the end of the road. If you get denied from early, that is the end of the road for you. Um, people will say, well, can I reapply for regular? No. That, that mm-hmm. is a final decision. If they wanted to defer you, they would have, but they didn't. Um, so, unfortunately, that's the end of the road. Um, deferral, uh, there are some schools that just deny and just admit and then there are some schools like Georgetown that only defer. They don't deny. Although I'd say in both of those circumstances, those are more the outliers than the norm. I'd say, by and large, most schools that have an early program will admit, defer, or deny. Right. I do. Yeah, I think there are some that I wish would be a little bit heavier-handed with the denials because sometimes it feels like false hope when you are deferring most of the students who applied. I do like that Georgetown is very clean in that you're either going to get in or you're going to get deferred. And by the same token, a place like Vanderbilt, you're either going to get in or you're going to get denied. There are no bones about it, so it doesn't leave a lot of questions. Um, Karen, thank you so much for joining today. I think there was um, a lot of great information here, and I really appreciate it. Yep, happy uh, to be on, um, and good luck to everybody as I hear back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next week, Sally is going to be hosting, and she's going to be talking about the UC, the University of California application, which opens on November 1st, and they're going to be answering listener questions, so send yours in. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.